Gene begins to talk or whatever, we're just going to lift up the Lord in praise this morning. Let's sing this all together. You're worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. Jesus, you deserve the glory. Let's sing that together. You're worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. Jesus, you deserve the glory. give Jesus a hand clap of praise this morning. Thank you. You may be seated. How many of you appreciate the presence of the living God in the house? Thank you so much. I want to give special thanks to Pastor Lee, Randy, and the team, and all those who make this possible. It's good to see a bunch of old friends and a few new ones. And, uh, I'm honored that you take part of your Saturday morning to come be in the presence of God and in the presence of other men to discuss how we can do our job better. Amen? That was a weak amen. <laughs> I saw Barry Ivey come in. Barry, it's good to see you, a state representative here in Louisiana, a public servant. Y'all give it up for Barry. I'm honored to speak before Tony Perkins and Lee Shipp because they're two of the best communicators I know, and uh, it makes my job a little bit easier. So y'all give me a little grace this morning. It's been a busy week at the Capitol. It's been an extraordinary and intense battle. How many of you know that the fact of war is everywhere? I mean, the Bible is a war manual, 
And you've been told as a man who've been given weapons of warfare, put your weapons up. Put your testimony away. Put your masculinity away. You know, I saw a meme the other day. It said it was the anniversary of Johnny Cash's famous song, A Boy Named Sue. It said, you know, in 2023, it's easier to be a boy named Sue than it was in 1969. <laughs> it's okay to laugh. You can laugh at the world. It's inside out and upside down, and you've been put here to speak an authoritative truth to it. When you stand upon a platform and you understand who you are in Christ. Can I get a better amen? amen? I want to share a few, a big idea with you. And then some finer points of what we can do. And this is a letter that was written by Lawrence Reed. It was published in an op-ed to explain at the time a problem that was happening in the country and a big idea and why it had negative implications. It's a rather lengthy letter. But I think it captures some of what I'd like to communicate with you in the few minutes that I have with you this morning. It was written by Lawrence Reed, the president of the Foundation of Economic Education. It was a survey that was also done by John Calhoun on what is called Mouse Utopia and the Welfare State. Mouse Utopia and the Welfare State. I'm not talking about welfare, but I'm talking about some of the principles that are embedded in the idea. You see, when we understand the moral reason why, we have a much clearer idea of what God calls us to do. There is a moral reason why for everything. And at some point, men got to stop asking, and women, where in the world did that come from? And begin to ask, where in God's word does it speak to that issue? And when you get there, you'll know exactly what God has equipped you and called you to, to, to do. National Park Service explains, signs in the park all over America warn, don't feed the animals. It makes them dependent. National Park Service explains, feeding wildlife transforms wild and healthy animals into beggars. Studies show it shortens their lives. What would happen if animals in the wild could count on human sources for their diet and never have to hunt? What if humans imposed a generous welfare state on our furry friends? Would the result offer lessons for humans who face similar circumstances? After all, not having to work for food or shelter sounds good, right? These are fascinating questions that the author goes on to say, I'm certainly not the first to ask because they require a knowledge beyond my own. I cannot offer definitive answers. I'll just report, you decide. Our personal pets live in a controlled environment. They seem to like it. My two labs get free food, free health care, tons of attention. And though I'm their provider, I'm also their master. My love and control are a condition for the free stuff. You got that? Win-win? Maybe a welfare state could work after all. Perhaps the human pet welfare works because my dogs have a brain about the size of a golf ball. This is an area illuminated by ethology, the scientific study of animal behavior. One of the more famous ethologists was John B. Calhoun, best known for his mouse experiments in the 60s and 70s when he worked then for the National Institute for Mental Health. Calhoun enclosed four pairs of mice in a high-rise nine-foot by five-foot metal pen complete with water dispensers, tunnels, food bins, nesting boxes. It was mouse utopia. 
There was nothing that they needed that could not be found there. He provided all the food and water and and ensured that no predator could gain access. Calhoun's intent was to observe the effect upon the mouse population, but the experiment produced results that went way beyond that. He goes on to say, I shall largely speak of mice, but my thoughts are upon men as well. And he did a comprehensive report. This is what it said. At first, the mice did well. Their numbers doubled every 55 days. But after 600 days, with enough space to accommodate 1,600 more mice, the population peaked at 2,200. And then it began its decline dramatically, down to the point of extinction of the whole colony. In spite of all their material needs being met and no effort required of any particular mouse, The turning point in mouse utopia occurred at day 315 when the first signs appeared of a breakdown in social norm and structure. Aberrations included females abandoning their young, males no longer defending their territory, and both sexes becoming violent and aggressive. Deviant behavior, sexual and social, mounted each day. The last thousand mice, get this, that were born tended to avoid stress altogether. They focus their attention on themselves alone. Sound familiar? John Kuban, a Polish cybernetician, considers Calhoun's experiment one of the most important in human history. He created the Physics of Life website where he elaborates on the meaning and significance of this work and about the final stages of mouse utopia. He writes, of the final batch of young mice who grew into adulthood, they exhibited an unusual type of behavior. Calhoun called these the beautiful ones, the beautiful ones. Here's what he said. He said their time was devoted to grooming, eating, and sleeping. They never involved themselves with other people. They never engaged in sex or fought. All appeared outwardly as beautiful exhibits of the species with keen eyes, healthy, well-kept bodies. But these mice could not cope with a single stressor other than eating sleeping and grooming. They looked perfect outwardly, but inwardly they were fragile and broken. Because of the free water and food and zero outside threat, the mice never had to acquire any skill. They never had to learn any resourcefulness on their own or how to interact with other mice or how to solve problems. The young mice never observed behavior and never learned those life skills necessary for survival. Mouse utopia produced an irresponsibility and ineffectiveness and a lack of awareness and then extinction. The self-destruction in his experiment, which Calhoun repeated over and over again with the same results every time, has to be blamed on overpopulation, the Darwinian evolutionist said. Hence the world's preoccupation. This was part of the 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 body of knowledge that fed some of our leading thinkers in the late 60s, early 70s, and 80s. Kuban rebuked that theory and said, in fact, the mice utopia fell out long before the mouse had a full house. Went on to say 20% of the nesting beds were empty at the time. They never reached the peak of their population. My instincts tell me, Kuban said, suggesting that the culprit in the mice demise was the lack of a healthy challenge. The lack of a healthy challenge. 
take away the motivation to overcome obstacles, the challenge to provide for oneself or one's family, and you deprive individuals of an important stimulus that otherwise is, encourages learning, teaches us what works and what doesn't, and possibly even pride and accomplishment if myths are even capable of that. Maybe personal growth in each mouse was inhibited by the so-called utopian conditions in which they lived. Calhoun himself suggested a parallel to humanity. Herein is the paradox of a life without work or conflict. When all sense of necessity is stripped from life of an individual, life ceases to have purpose. The individual spirit dies. By relieving individuals of challenges which deprives them of purpose, the welfare state is utterly unnatural, antisocial. The mouse experiment, the mice lost interest in things that perpetuate the species. They self-isolated, overindulged, and turned on to violence. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 talks about a generation that's arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. Familiar with that generation? I could go on, but I, I think that makes the point. To what extent does the mouth utopia lesson apply to us today? Economist Thomas Sowell offers this. The welfare state shields people from consequences of their own mistakes, allowing irresponsibility to be perpetuated and never corrected. I'm fascinated by what happened in the experiment. But I'm not talking about welfare. I'm talking about human nature. I'm talking about the nature of all God's created things. Why did it happen? The lack of a healthy challenge. Some people in this room would call that the good life. You've been told that's the good life. You've been told that's what we aspire for. That's the finish line. That's what it's all about. We've seen that from the beginning. The lack of a healthy challenge. Unless you think humans would fare better than mice, consider the creator's experiment in Utopia, the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. It was provided. There was an abundance of food, a perfect environment, an overflow of accommodations. There were no real predators, only one prohibition. Leave that tree alone. And they couldn't do it. Adam and Eve's utopia produced similar outcomes, perhaps for different reasons, or maybe not. Of mice and men, America offers a similar experiment and the national abundance, freedom, and opportunity, and the subsidies. We have a generation, dare we call them the beautiful ones, who avoid marriage, shun kids, quietly quit working, demand food, housing, protection, from every threat, real or imagined, from government, or parents, or pastors, or nonprofit, or anybody who will be empathetic enough to provide. Y'all with me? Am I telling the truth? But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. 2 Timothy 3, you know this passage. Or consider the other end of the spectrum. It's where we're told, hey man, you're supposed to land safely and enjoy this life. We call it retirement. You quit. I'm not sure that that's a biblical construct. I understand as we age, we slow. Our, our ability to recover, our ability to stay in the game. But I don't think ever God pulled us out of the game and said, you go sit on the sidelines and just coast from here on out. Yeah. 
Come on, somebody. I believe on the beginning and on the end, we've been told lies. I believe God put you here just like he built that, just like the men of this nation built the U.S. kid. It had powerful guns on it that were established to make war. God's put those guns on you as well to war against the forces of wickedness, to find the healthy challenges, to find your place in his purposes and his plan that you might be exactly what he's called you to do. Now, regardless of however imperfect your heart beats, and this heart beats imperfectly. Come on, somebody. I don't know any that doesn't. That's not what it's about. It's about him. It's about choosing to make oneself available to the purposes and plans and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. America's preoccupation with retirement brings decline, mental and physical exhaustion, and often rapidly departure from the presence of God's people and the purposes that he's put us here for. I'm not sure utopia or America's modern version of it, the big quit, is a good idea. I think he wants us to find a challenge today. You say, man, I got so many challenges I don't know what to do with. You ever wonder if that's not perhaps your purpose? You ever wonder if God knows what he's doing and perhaps he planted you right where you needed to be so that you might find in him you find life and strength and power and understanding and the fortitude to finish? Outside of him, you can do nothing. If heaven had a password today, I believe it would be thank you, Lord. We don't speak it often enough. Over the challenge that you have right now, whatever it may be, however incomprehensible, however challenging, however difficult, however unreasonable, he faced all of those things. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for those who labor in healthy, heavenly challenges. Thank you for the men who stand for their families, however imperfectly they do that, to provide, to protect, to guide, to disciple. Dad, you've been given a purpose. That purpose to present those children who are missionaries to a time and a place you may never see. They're arrows in the hands of a mighty warrior. You're to present them mature in Christ. How do we do that? We labor through the healthy challenges of every iteration and stage of development. However imperfect they are or we are. Both mice and men forgot that. Maybe that's why so many challenges exist in America today. If the foundations be destroyed, it says in Psalm 11:3, what will the righteous do? God's purpose, his purpose, his precepts, and his principles are the guiding light. It's not hard to know what God would like of you. It's hard to fulfill it. It's hard to obey. Don't ever say you don't know. If you don't know, it's because you're not hungry. Because he tells us, blessed are those that hunger and thirst. They will be filled. You're getting filled with whatever you're hungry and thirsty for. Man, how about a thank you for the healthy challenge? Lord, I want to do this well. You say, does it really matter that dads do that? There's a statistic I'd love to show you from Leadership Institute and others who have published it through the years that say that when the dad's the first one to come to the Lord, 93% of the time the rest of the family does. When it's the mom, it's 17.5%. It's much lower when it's the child in 3.5%. See, God's method of evangelism, dad, is you getting on fire 
and being thankful about the healthy challenges that are before you. Let me tell you something. They don't understand it. They never will understand it. This generation, you experience the father hurt, the heavenly father feels all the time because they don't understand. The honor that's due that role, we don't, as a people in America, we in the world, even in the church, we struggle to bestow the proper honor over the role that you fill. That's why they make great eulogies at the end. They're trying to make up for all the things they forgot or didn't know how to or didn't consider were important enough to say when you were still here. Just like we do the Heavenly Father when we ignore Him. He says in Malachi, where is my honor? Where is the honor that you owe me now? There's not one ounce of creation over which He doesn't say, That includes me and you. We've been bought with a price. Every second of every day, of every year of our lives are his. It's his. Purpose clarifies everything. Look, I I love the, and I know i got to quit, so I'm fixing to wrap up. Y'all getting something out of this? Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. If Paul could see modern-day family today, guess what? We'd be getting a letter. (laughs) How misguided is it to tell the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's purchased you with a price? You don't have time for him this morning. You don't have time for his word. You don't have time to get into his presence. You don't have time to learn how to communicate to this generation those things that matter to him over the challenges that are healthy challenges that, remember, you're supposed to be thankful for instead of avoiding, instead of trying to run away from it, instead of trying to bypass it or pass it on to another generation. Purposeful family living attracts an anointing. Let me tell you, when you step into this, what you find is that the overflow, the infilling, the anointing. Everybody say the anointing. You know what the deal is with God's anointing? He puts a too much anointing on everything that he, that everything he anoints. There's a too much. It spills out. It's a sloppy agape. When he fills the cup, it's not barely full. It's not halfway full. It's overflowing full. And it gets on everything that you come in contact with as you pursue with gratitude your healthy challenges. And as you stand in a place that make you a candidate for God's anointing, an anointing comes upon you that overflows into everything you do. Your finances, your entertainment, your appreciation, your connection with other men, your power to address the cultural concerns rather than just get PO'd about it you began to speak to the decision makers. Luke 4 says it this way, and I close. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's exactly what God wants for you. For the Spirit of the Lord to come upon you, to abide, to make his habitation there, to celebrate that you prepared for that anointing in your life. Not just that Pastor Lee would have it. Not just that Tony would have it. Not just that our leaders, Felix and others, uh, would walk in the anointing, but that we would. Ordinary men, paper plates, earthenware, earthen vessels, containing the presence of an eternal God and communicating that. There is no greater calling in this life 
to preach the gospel to the poor. They may be those poor little kids of yours or grandkids. I, at my house, I call them my wife's little issues. She issued every one of them. They're not so little anymore. Some of them are very big. And with it come the big issues or challenges. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Starts at home. To proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Dads, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a powerful, that's a full-time job. It's not easy. But man, that's where you get qualified. That's where you learn the challenges and you learn to express it right there in home. I know my time is up. I'll conclude with this. Be a man of your, be a man of the word. Be a man of the word. Fall in love with his word. Then be a man of your word. Walk it out. Live it out. Pledge it. Don't hide. Don't live in the shadows. Don't shadow box anymore with the things of God or the people of God. And then finally, be a man who speaks a word that resonates with another soul. Be a man of the word. Be a man of your word. And be a man who speaks a word that resonates with other lives. God bless you.